Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you as always for downloading, subscribing, rating, letting people know about the programme. We very much appreciate it. Really interesting show for you this week because we're going to be talking about killer bees. I was having a chat with my son in the kitchen only this week and he told me that killer bees are real and were the result of a horrible science experiment gone wrong. And I thought he's reading a science fiction book, but turns out he's right. And we'll be hearing that story later on in the program. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. First, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me to discuss is Catherine McGuinness, educator and science communicating zoologist, uh, and Dr. Jessamine Fairfield from the University of Galway. She's a physicist there. Thanks very much for joining us. Our first story, Jessamine, has to do with El Nino. That's right. So El Nino, as we know, is this oscillation of the ocean surface temperature in the Pacific that happens some years. There's El Nino, which is hot, and La Nina, which is cold. Um, and this oscillation is predicted to happen this year in the Pacific, which leads to devastating heat potentially in 2024. When you say so, oscillation, what, what do you mean by oscillation? So basically, you can think of the ocean surface temperature as having like a norm, a kind of normal temperature that it tends to have. Um, and the ocean's temperature can either go down, resulting in a La Nina by, you know, like three or five degrees Celsius, not too much, um, or it can go up by three or five degrees Celsius. And this might not sound huge, but it has all these knock-on effects on weather really around the world. Um, so it means different things in different places, but it tends to mean these really extreme weather events uh, happening everywhere. Um, fun fact that I learned researching this story, El Nino was originally called El Nino de Navidad. And you can remember that because the temperature becoming higher tends to happen over Christmas, over Navidad. Um, so this is a, a, a prediction that's being made by the UK Met Office, by Australia's Bureau of Meteorology, by the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, and the last few years around the world have been very hot, right? They, they, I think all of the um, seven hottest years have happened in the last eight years, which isn't great. Um, but the last three years have been La Nina years. So that, that part of the Pacific Ocean has been cooler, and that's led to a lot of cooler weather events around the world, if you can believe that. So the problem is predicted to be this year when we switch from La Nina to El Nino, which should be happening through the summer into the fall, leading to probably an El Nino event starting around Christmas that's going to mean really hot temperatures next year. Um, and this might sound like, oh, you know, El Nino, La Nina, you know, what's the difference? But there was a really extreme El Nino event in 1998, which actually caused 16% of the world's coral reef systems to die. So having a big El Nino now, when we've continued to have global warming, like we're sitting right now at 1.2 degrees C of global warming, um, which has led to heat waves, floods, you know, large scale harm all over the world. Um, actually, the UK Met Office said that having a, an El Nino now could easily lead to that 1.5 degrees C of global warming, which was, you know, the target that we were kind of trying to stay under. Um, so this is not super welcome news. Um, it is still just a prediction, but it's a prediction being corroborated by a lot of organizations around the world. So, so El Nino isn't an annual thing. It's, a, it's, no, it's once it's every couple of years. Like, what, what, why is that? Yeah, it's, it, I find it from a physics perspective, I would say it's because it's a chaotic system. Um, <laughs> El Nino and La Nina oscillations, that's why it's called an oscillation and not just like a cycle. Um, the intervals tend to vary from two to seven years apart. And the El Nino and La Nina events may not take up that whole time period either. And, you know, we can have just periods of this sort of neutral ocean condition as well. 
Um, but it's basically it's due to changes in the current and whether hot or cold water is upwelling from underneath the Pacific. So, yeah, it's a, it's a complicated system, but then it has all these weather knock on effects around the world. So uh, that's in December. And then w when that change happens, it's pretty much instantaneous. We're going to see a lot of weather events then in December. Well, it'd be the following year, basically. So like, actually, when I, I, I grew up in New Mexico, and we were always very worried about El Nino events, because if we had an El Nino event around Christmas, what it would mean for the next year was a really bad fire season in like May, June. Right. Um, okay. So what exactly El Nino means depends on where you are in the world, but it pretty much always means more more climate chaos, uh, which is not something we really want at this point in time. Catherine, our second story has to do with altruism. Yes. So this is a study done in the University of Michigan and is looking at pro-social behaviour in young children, so toddlers. And, you know, it's looking at altruistic behaviour. So basically helping without looking for a reward for helping. And we have been looking at this for years in terms of why people and why uh, older children and adults do it. This is the first time they were looking at very young children. And hopefully the results and further research will show us where this behaviour has evolved from and whether it was very important to our evolutionary process uh, in, in earlier uh, man. So this has probably the most frightening sample group I've ever heard in my life. It's 97 toddlers, uh, all 20 <laughs> to 47 months, and um, split roughly into boys and girls, 51 girls, 46 boys. And what they have did basically is each child was placed in a room with a child-friendly dog. And they used three different dogs, Henry, Fiona and Seymour. And there was a fence placed between the child and the dog. And either treats or dog toys were placed into the child's half of the room. And the study was really to see, um, would the child look at the dog's behaviour, read the dog's cues if they whined or begged for the toy or the treat, and then would the child actually hand the toy or the treat over and therefore that's your altruism because obviously there's no reward in it for the child there's a reward in it for the dog now interestingly enough um the results showed that about 50 percent of the time the toddlers would hand over the, the food or the toy if the dog looked for it if they whined or cried or tried to scratch to get the item and then 26 percent of the time they would hand it over if the dog seemed uninterested. Um, and they were more likely to hand it over if it was food rather than a toy. Um, but then you see, also looking at this group, you have to ask, is this pro-social behaviour or is this learnt behaviour? Do they have dogs? Yeah, half the sample group have dogs at home. So there is that, yeah, there is that whole what? thing. Now, the, now that 26% that the, the children handed over the item when the dog wasn't interested in it or looking for it. That could be your learnt behaviour. So, the, you know, it's something that's dropped in. Oh, they recognise it as something for the dog, not for them. They give it over to the dog. The dog might look for it later on. And so there is that question over, was the reaction really pro-social behaviour or is it learnt behaviour? And, and the researchers have said that they really do need to, a lot more research into this, particularly to show and understand the emotion behind handing the item over. So, you know, why was it handed over by such a, you know, again, and we're talking about very young children here. But they, yeah, they might be young. I mean, like uh, more research may be required. To me, it sounds mm -hmm. like starting from scratch research is required because um, <laughs> because even if they don't have dogs surely these mm. kids would have seen dogs being fed in the multiple um tv programs and games that they would have played that, ha that feature pets at home i mean every, yeah, yeah. even at that age everyone knows that uh, you know that sort of food isn't for them it's for a dog and I, I, it just seems like a really poorly designed experiment that teaches us nothing <laughs> 
well, this is, and, and also uh, the results also showed that if the dog was more engaging, and that, that was that's their phrasing, so the dog was more engaging, the child was more likely to hand something over. Now, by engaging, do they mean cute? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, the Probably. your dog got more treats. I don't know. Um, it, it's very subjective, though. Right. Okay. Um, I'm not sure about that one, uh, but thanks, Catherine. Our third story has to do with something really cool. I thought you'd love this, Jess. Lightning bolts. I do love this uh, because it's about using a laser to redirect a lightning bolt. And not just like in the lab, like on the top of a gigantic mountain in Switzerland. So, I mean, this like lightning on its own is really cool. Um, and this this research is kind of incredible in what they were able to do. It's on top of the Sentis Mountain, which is 2,500 meters tall in northeastern Switzerland. It's like the tallest mountain in this huge massif of mountains. And it has this uh, over 100 meter tall telecom tower on the top, which is struck by lightning 100 times per year. Like that's how exposed wow. it is. Um, and these researchers were trying to figure out is there a way to divert some of the lightning strikes from this obviously very appealing lightning target? Um, so what they did was they took a terawatt laser, it's like a really, really powerful laser. And when they thought that there were conditions conducive to lightning forming over the summer, they basically just shot laser pulses at the clouds for like multiple hours. Um, to anger it? <laughs> well, what's cool about this, right, is that it gets down to how lightning actually happens, which is it's this breakdown um, in air where basically these really strong electric fields are pulling apart ions in air. So they're charging it into like positive and negative charges. And it's kind of self-propagating. I mean, which, you know, if you've ever looked at lightning, um, but basically this ionization of the air effectively forms like a little lens that then concentrates further electric field propagation, which then eventually leads to, you know, a huge amount of current passing through. I mean, the temperature in a lightning bolt is 30,000 degrees Celsius, which is over five times hotter than the surface of the sun. Like lightning is incredible. And it's also like, you know, if, if you've watched lightning kind of develop, especially on like slow motion cameras or anything like that, you can see it's kind of like looking for these paths, right? Like there's these little things called leaders, which are spreading out from the core lightning path. And then those eventually find a big path. And that's what all of the current passes through. And that's the lightning bolt, the main one that we see. Um, so what this laser does is it basically kind of does the same thing. It, it does that same ionization process to change the, the index of air to have that same sort of lensing thing, um, which then concentrates the, the path of the current. Now, how often did this actually work in this study? It happened four times over like four months. Um, and only one of those times were they able to capture it on camera. The images are really cool because you can basically see like a lightning bolt that part of it, which, you know, follows this sort of organic path through the sky and part of it goes right along the path of the laser and you can see the laser and it's so cool. Um, like, is this practical as a way to divert lightning bolts from really tall buildings? I'm not 100% sure on that because, you know, we have this thing called a lightning rod. Um, that's much cheaper and easier to install and it does work pretty well. Uh, lightning rods, of course, kind of attract lightning, but you have a whole structure built up so that the lightning isn't damaging the building um, that the lightning is striking. Uh, I mean, I love this headline of lasers and lightning together at last. Um, oh, the other thing too I'll mention is that the laser was a huge risk to planes flying overhead. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so, but, that's but you know what? Kind of a logistical it, it, problem as well. To me, I think this is sort of a scissors paper rock, scissors paper rock um, situation in science, where cool should be doable, should be affordable. Oh, totally. I think there should be a scissors paper rock approach to science, where cool should beat 
uh, realistic and that realistic should be just affordable. And I think, you know, if you go around that, that loop, I think absolutely cool experiments should, should definitely go ahead, even if they make no sense and aren't affordable. I mean, this is cool. No question. <laughs> uh, all right. Our final story, uh, Catherine, has to do with a natural fertilizer. It does. So um, this is work that's been done in Europe. And of course, at the moment, we all know about the cost of living crisis. Uh, cost of food is rising. And part of the reason for this is the cost of fertilizer and fertilizer production, because nitrogen based fertilizer needs an awful lot amount of um, natural gas to produce. So, of course, this is all leading to a, an increase in costs. So uh, researchers in Europe have been looking at using human waste as a, as a form of uh, fertilizer. So this wouldn't just be raw human waste. Now, that, that's very, very important to understand. So it's highly, highly processed into something called an NUF or NUF, a nitrified urine fertilizer. It's a, it's a type of uh, compost. And what this experiment did was they grew cabbage and they had a control group using um, a different type of synthetically produced fertilizer and then using these NUFs. The first showed that the yield didn't change. So one fertilizer was as good as another. Um, but also the cabbages were screened for um, 310 different pharmaceutical compounds because that would obviously be the worry using human waste is the trace, uh, trace chemicals and also um, pathogens. So like speed, trips and E and that sort of stuff. Everything, hormones, and, you know, all sorts of things, right. you know, different, uh, just ibuprofen, paracetamol, um, different kind of uh, drugs that people would take every day for different ailments. So um, for all of, of the over 300 uh, items screened for, only six and a half percent were uh, detected and detected at very low levels. And only two out of over 300 were found in edible parts of the cabbage and that was ibuprofen and then an anti-convulsion medication known as carbamazepine and this uh, second one in particular was found in very very low doses in fact they reckoned that you would have to eat half a million heads of cabbage to accumulate one dose that's unlikely so <laughs> give it a good go, but you wouldn't be feeling very well afterwards. Uh, so and there's been no risk. Uh, the old results showed no real risk of uh, transfer of pathogens. That's a pretty good result, isn't it, Catherine? Because obviously yeah. even just washing your um, your lettuce or whatever it is you're mm. using, you know, you are using, uh, you know, water that's gone through filtration system. But, you know, there's chances of 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 things being in that, even if you don't wash yeah. it or handling it someone, there's always going to be a, 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 a chance of contaminants. But uh, this seems to show that we can use a, a waste product that nobody wants <laughs> uh, to, to, to grow food. The question is whether or not it will be labeled as such that's it and you know as there's billions of people on earth so there's plenty of source and the, actually this study uh, reckoned they estimated that about a quarter of the fertilizer used in germany could be replaced by these nfus um i have a the feeling they'll is, go for that pretty quick it just uh, <laughs> well, the germans the, the love thing, that stuff <laughs> we're not judging we're not judging but uh, no but is there is the squeamish aspect to it and the one of the researchers in this uh, study had already done trials in South Africa and working with the local farmers they found them you know once they got over their squeamishness of the, the source of the fertilizer actually they were pretty happy to use it and, and the yields are just as good as artificial fertilizer look we're, we're throwing this stuff away and I know that sounds like a joke but we really are and it seems crazy in this um, day and age to throw anything that has any use um 
out, out the door or flush it down the toilet. So, um, yeah, well, we, uh, we've painted ourselves into this corner. So, yeah, uh, right. Well, um, something for you to think about um, this <laughs> evening, perhaps. Uh, Dr. Jessamyn Fairfield from University of Galway and uh, zoologist and educator Catherine McGuinness, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. All right, on the way, Attack of the Killer Bees. Now, the Africanized honeybee has earned itself the nickname of the Killer Bee. But is that name merited? And how much truth is there to the suggestion that the species was created by an experiment gone wrong? Well, joining me to discuss is Mark L. Winston, Professor Emeritus and Senior Fellow at the Morris J. Wask Centre for Dialogue at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada. What on earth is these, the Morris J. Wask Centre for Dialogue, Mark? <laughs> well, Centre for Dialogue is a place where we uh, get together and talk about difficult issues, public issues, civic issues. Uh, it's a teaching and learning center for uh, students to engage with community and public issues. So okay. uh, talking about the Africanized killer bees is a perfect center for dialogue activity. All right. Okay. So um, tell me what is a killer bee, please? Well, the so-called killer bee is really a, a bee that came from Africa. It's a honeybee. It's the same species of honeybee you would have in Ireland or uh, many other countries throughout the world. It was imported to Brazil in 1956 as part of an experiment to see if they could create a better tropical bee for um, the new world. Why, why and, would you need a better tropical bee? Well, honeybees honey are not native to North or South America. They're native to Europe and to Asia. And uh, the European bees that had been brought to Brazil at that time were not very good honey producers in tropical countries. They'd really evolved for more temperate conditions. Right. The African bees were known to be aggressive. But let's bring them over to Brazil, interbreed them, make hybrids with the European bees, see if we can get a better tropical producing honeybee. Why not European bees? Why African bees? The European bees are, they designed and evolved their whole life cycle is for building very large colonies that store up a lot of honey in environments where there's very rich honey sources. You know, there are things blooming in more temperate climates that are very intense large uh, acreages of the same thing. Whereas in the tropics, the um, the food sources, the nectar and pollen sources tend to be more dispersed. And the African bees build smaller colonies, store up much less honey. And um, so the hope was to take the gentle European characteristics and their honey producing characteristics and mix them with the African bees that might be better foragers in more dispersed environments. Right. So, um, there was a biologist involved, the name of Warwick E. Kerr, and he was commissioned by the Brazilian government to to create a bee that might work better in, in places like Brazil. How do you go about doing that? I mean, is it easy to to interbreed bees because of the the way they breed with a, a queen and a colony and so on? Is it, is it fairly easy to, to interbreed bee species? Uh, no, not really. And keep in mind <laughs> that this is the same species. It's all the honeybee, Apis mellifera. Oh, right, okay. So it's a subspecies, and they, they do breed together quite well. But uh, breeding with honeybees is very complex. They have a very strange genetic system. Um, you can't control where they mate very well, so you have to do artificial insemination, which is a bit complex. And there are so many traits that you have to select for. You know, you could select for a less aggressive bee, but then you might get a bee that uh, doesn't produce a lot of honey. And so it's not an easy task. And Warwick Kerr, he was one of the world's foremost geneticists, and he really wanted to take up the challenge. 
very interesting guy. He was um, a very progressive Brazilian at a time when there was very right-wing Brazilian government. And he ended up in jail a few times for speaking out against some of the oppressive measures of the right-wing government and really wanted to do something to help the industry. His motives were sterling. But he did make the mistake of bringing the African bees to Brazil rather than trying to do the experiments in, the, in Africa first. And uh, the story is that they set up colonies of African bees. 26 swarms escaped into the wild, and that formed the nucleus of a feral population that had that spread since at unprecedented rates and unprecedented levels. It was a remarkable success story for an introduced species, but <laughs> created a lot of challenges for beekeepers and for the public. So um, obviously the idea was not to have the African bee. The idea was to create a, a hybrid bee that had some of the traits of the African bee and some of the traits of the European. So, but, but this killer bee was that, right? This killer bee was a hybrid, but it got loose before what? Before they figured out how dangerous it could be or how easily agitated it was? No, it wasn't really a hybrid when it escaped. The bees that escaped were pure African. Right. The bees that spread all the way to all the way pretty much to the United States at this point uh, were also uh, almost identical to what was originally introduced. And um, you know that bee was known to be very aggressive, but I think the assumption was that we would breed the aggression out of them before they got into the wild. Right. And uh, there were two major mistakes with that. First, of course, the bees escaped, and they <laughs> yeah. were perfectly pre-adapted for South America, so they just did phenomenally well. But the second mistake was the uh, hybrid bees, uh, when they are produced, can also be quite aggressive. And they tend to take the African rather than the European characteristics. So it was not a well-conceived um, experiment. And uh, Kerr was devastated when he saw the impact that his bees were, that not his bees, but the bees that escaped, were having all through South America. He was a person with a very big heart, and it really pained him to see the, the negative impact that uh, he inadvertently caused. I can only imagine, you know, um, most biologists and ecologists really, you know, love the natural world. And the idea of, of tipping the balance as much as this work ended up doing uh, would be an absolute nightmare for, for any of them. Can you um, tell me a little bit about this spread, why uh, it was so bad and, um, and why they have this name killer? Why is it a killer bee? Well, the spread was because they had many characteristics besides being aggressive that ideally pre-adapted them for the wild. They nest in small colonies, they swarm, reproduce very often, they travel long distances, they forage well in a dispersed environment. And um, so, so once they were out in the wild, they reproduced at a phenomenal rate. And then they just spread, they would spread, you know, three, 400 kilometers a year, moving all through South America, up through Central America, and spread in large numbers. You know, there'd be you could look up and, you know, some days you'd see a dozen swarms flying over your head because they were just doing so well. Wow. As far as the killer bee, they are an extremely defensive honeybee. And like any, any species, there's a lot of variability. Some of them are more defensive than others. But at the extreme, there have, you know, there were hundreds of deaths in South America due to massive amounts of stinging. You know, we're talking about people getting stung thousands of times, not just a single sting from an allergic reaction. Sometimes just walking near a nest would elicit thousands of bees coming out within seconds and stinging. And once the stinging starts, they're very sensitive to the alarm pheromones that are given off. And so more bees come out, they sting, and they just hone right in on a victim. 
you know, there have been cases of people being stung seven or 8,000 times. And that level of venom, whether you're allergic or not, is going to be toxic to almost anybody. And since they nest anywhere, they often nest you know, in villages, cities, close to people. And so there was a lot more contact between people and bees. Um, and it was a pretty um, devastating situation. And it also, it also really knocked back beekeeping in South America for quite some time, because who could keep bees under those circumstances? Right. And, and of course, this one event, when you think about the impact of it, um, it hasn't gone away. Like the, these colonies of uh, Africanized honeybees are all over South America and uh, where Northern America meets uh, Central America, right? Yes. Uh, I would say the, the bees have been extremely successful all the way up into the Southern United States. The problems caused by the bees are you know, over the last many, many decades have diminished for a number of reasons. One is in the long run, what Kerr wanted to do happened. Beekeepers started selecting the bees, breeding out the more aggressive characteristics. And um, they do probably now have a better tropical producing honeybee. And the number of stinging incidents has gone way down, partly because the selected bees are less aggressive, but also people are now much more aware of staying away from wild honeybee colonies or, or um, apiaries. And so there's a much better um, understanding by the public that honeybees are not necessarily uh, this, you know, the nice fuzzy creatures that we're used to up here in North America, that they can be dangerous. But um, if these bees were in the wild, how can you select out the traits? I mean, if they are wild populations swarming um, Central America, how do you change their genetic makeup over generations if, if they're out there in the wild? There's two ways you can do that. One is by selection. And so you take a colony that's less aggressive and you breed queens from that colony and then you inseminate them artificially with drones that come from males, male bees that come from also non-aggressive colonies. The second way is just by pure saturation. You just have so many colonies of the type you want in an area that they overwhelm the wild population. But because there's so many African bees in the wild, uh, that's not as effective a method. And so it really takes... Um, it's some fairly sophisticated genetic work and using artificial insemination to um, create the kind of colonies with the kinds of characteristics that are useful for beekeeping and safer for the public. They're not called killer bees because they kill people, though, right? They're called killer bees because of how they um, attack other bee species. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, first, the name killer bee comes from the Spanish term assassin bee, abeja asesina. And the name assassin may not actually relate to their defensive characteristics. It may relate to the fact that the colonies, the swarms of African bees will enter other colonies, kill the local queen and take it over, uh, essentially assassinating the monarch. And um, the North American press jumped from that to killer bee because they're very aggressive. Um, the defensive characteristic of these bees is quite adaptive, especially in Africa where they came from, where there are many, many pests on, and predators on honeybees, including people. I mean, there's been honey hunting in Africa you know, going back as long, far back as there were uh, humans, where people would break open nests. So we're one of the predators, but there's many others. There's birds, there's honey badgers. Um, and so that defensiveness is really a well-adapted trait for an environment where there's lots of predation. Uh, obviously, the bee populations of the world are um, 
experiencing a bit of a crisis at the moment with colony collapse disorder and just the the delicate nature of bees. Um, given how well this particular bee has fared in, you know, in a new environment. Is there any hope that we might be able to replicate something like that with a less aggressive bee? Or am I just going down the same path again to find us in the same same uh, destination? But, uh, you know, is there any way of um, selecting for uh, for a bee to repopulate the bee populations of the world in the same way as was done by mistake with this bee? Well, we're now forced into a situation where we really have to look at... Um, the genetics of the bees that we're using, because there are so many problems that honeybees are having all over the globe. The killer bee, African bee, is the least of the problems. There's pests, there's agricultural issues, there's pesticides, there's uh, the way that we keep bees. Uh, is, all over the world has really been, um, it's really been suffering. And the way forward is going to involve selecting bees that have traits that are resistant to pesticides that are resistant to the pests and the parasites that have colonized bees all over the world. And probably also going back to the original ideas of selection, which is that you need to select bees that are best adapted for the local conditions. And honeybees now are a real polyglot of bees that have come from all over the world and mixed. For example, here in North America, we have bees from all over Europe, primarily bees from Italy. In Ireland, you've got bees that come from many different places, and there's a, um, a a movement in Ireland now to go back to the original Irish bee. There is a native subspecies of well, yeah, a native well, a native type of honeybee that that was present in Ireland for you know thousands of years, and it's a smaller, darker well, it's a darker bee, and uh, many beekeepers have now become passionate about. Let's go back to the Irish bee. It evolved. It was selected by nature to do well in Ireland under our very specific and unique Irish conditions. Let's just you know go back and see if we can make a straight line of um, that bee and see how it does in our country. So I think selection in the future is going to be the way forward. But as we mentioned earlier, it's not the easiest thing in the world to select honeybees. It's a very long, complex process. And uh, you know, scientists, beekeepers are really working on it. And it's, it's uh, making, you know, we're getting better at it, but it's a, it's a challenge. It, it looks like, um science is is really the the most important tool in walking back sort of the results of over commercialization in every industry <laughs> it seems that we're turning to science to try and fix um what over commercialization uh, has has wrought really interesting speaking with you uh, mark winston is from the simon fraser university in british columbia in canada thanks for your time mark it's been a pleasure killer bees were a thing in movies around about the time of quicksand was wasn't it wasn't there were a time in the 70s and 80s when everybody was dying from quicksand in A-Team and various movies and TV series. Uh, really interesting stuff. Love to hear your thoughts on that, particularly if you're a beekeeper. Uh, I, I don't know much about the black uh, honeybee from Ireland. Um, let us know. All right. Um, we got uh, a few texts in from last week. Um, we were talking about how Romans made self-healing concrete. Really fascinating uh, to think of the ingenuity of uh, Roman engineers 2,000 years ago. Um, Garod on Twitter says, When you were talking about concrete underwater, it reminded me of when I was an intern at a marine lab. We used a mixture of cement and plaster of Paris to attach rocks with corals back onto the reef. It was a surprise to me back then too. We'd mix the powders in a bag in a specific ratio 
I can't remember now. At the reef, we'd swim down, open the bag a tiny bit and leave in a dribble of water, enough to mix into a paste. You could feel the heat of the reaction, which is what allowed it to cure even underwater. And that's what the Romans were doing 2,000 years ago. Lovely memory, Garota. I bet you um, look back on those years very fondly. We were also talking about living on Mars and uh, we got a comment saying Living on Mars and Red Mars by Kim Stanley Robinson worth a read to look at the colonisation of Mars. 30 years later, I'm sure there are many new technologies, but only the idea of 3D printing buildings stands out. The idea of concrete from the moon dust has been around for years too. Well, thanks very much for those. And uh, we'd love to get your comments, by the way. We read them all. So do send us your thoughts, comments, emails, contributions, criticisms and complaints to science at newstalk.com that's it from us for this week hope you enjoyed the program we'll be back with more future proof in your podcast feed on tuesday thanks to marisa sullivan simon Keane, steve daunt and hugo de silva the team behind the show i'll see you on tuesday for more future proof in your podcast feed in the meantime stay curious future proof with jonathan mccray proudly supported by science foundation ireland sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.